0: Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, this is God's Word. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." What is a church? I would suggest that the way that you answer that question says a lot about your understanding of Christianity. For the Bible often uses the word church to describe the smallest unit in God's kingdom rather than the believer. And this sounds very contrary to much of what passes as Christianity in this country, for uh, we are often reminded of the individual priesthood of the believer that that supersedes any importance of collective Christianity. Me and my Bible, or even worse, me and Jesus, becomes the slogan of our modern Christianity. This creed, and yes, it is a creed, no matter how many times its adherents may protest, finds no support in Scripture, for God did not save us merely to be individuals, but to be collected in His family, in His kingdom, in His church. For the past few verses, Paul has explained the union of Jew and Gentile under their common salvation in Jesus Christ. He has focused on their new unity in Christ and with each other. In the next chapter, he will discuss Uh, his ministry, and the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. But for now, he concludes his discussion with a vision of the new people of God, the new temple, the new church, in one group, a group with a new status, a new foundation, and a new building, a new status, a new foundation, and a new building. Paul again turns his attention to the Gentiles and discusses their inclusion into the family of God. Previously, he has described their position as without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, and having no hope, and without God in the world. And here he picks up that idea here as he talks about that where before they were strangers and foreigners, now they are fellow citizens of the people of God. Paul begins this uh, verse in verse 19 now therefore two conjunctions that are placed together that show a consequence and a result from and the access that both Jews and gentiles have with the father paul concludes the following change in circumstances we read in verse 18 for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the father now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners because you have this new access to the father both jew and gentile together you no longer can consider yourself a stranger or a foreigner While the Jew was always considered to be a part of God's people, the Gentile was not. He was a stranger and a foreigner, but now he no longer is. The Christian Gentile is not in that category any longer. He no longer stands outside the covenant community looking into a nation and family that is not his own. He no longer looks into that community uh, where God is at its center wishing to draw near, but now he is a part of it. The Gentile now occupies a new, stage, new situation, no longer a stranger and foreigner, but fellow citizen. That word there is soon politia, this idea of a political entity, a citizen with the saints, a citizen separated from the rest of humanity, dedicated to the Lord. This word is interesting because it picks up on the political and national language that was common in Paul's day. And probably more common than it was to us, if you uh, remember when we were talking about the book of Philippians, it's a very big thing in Philippians. It's a very th- big thing for Paul, his Roman citizenship. And this idea is being picked up here. You had no uh, right to be a citizen of Rome if you were uh, not a part of a Roman regal family. If you were not, you had to purchase your right into uh, that prestigious group of people. And without that protection, you were basically an outlaw. And we often think of outlaws as bad people. We look at them as black hats that we see on the local Western shows. Uh, but that's not necessarily what that, how that word was used originally. Even the great Martin Luther, subsequent to his excommunication, was considered an outlaw. An outlaw was someone who was outside the protection of the law. And that's not completely true in this case, but those who were not Roman citizens did not have the same rights and privileges of the law that Roman citizens did. We remember this in the book of Acts as uh, Paul is taken to be beaten and he asks the, the, his, the centurion there at the prison, is it right for you to beat a Roman citizen without a trial? This causes everyone to get upset and he calls his tribune, and the tribune comes in and says, Are you Roman citizens? Yes, I am. He says, I purchased mine at a great price. And Paul says that he is born a citizen. The sense of rights and privileges is one that is inherent in this statement. That the Gentiles are now members of the household of God and having all the rights and privileges of the people of God. It follows from his previous statements for through him, we, have both, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Here, as fellow citizens, they both have access to the Father. Only those who are members of the family are able to call God Father. Those and only those who own Christ can call God rightly Father. We have the idea of fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 says, All those who, that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to be made partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken up into the number and enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. It's one of my favorite parts of uh, the three benefits that we receive from Christ as our mediator, both justification, adoption, and sanctification. I've often said that adoption is probably one of the least appreciated of the three. We spend a lot of time talking about justification. We spend almost much time talking about sanctification, but adoption often gets the short shrift. Nevertheless, it is one of the doctrines that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions of the world, that we who do not deserve to have a place with God can call God Father. It places us into the closest relationship with the Godhead. It is indeed the privilege of the Christian As Paul has indicated before, this adoption, this presence, uh, fuels our prayer life. As the Westminster Confession says, we have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. As Paul, in this very uh, section right before, we have access, uh, we both have access by one spirit and to the Father. The church should be a community of prayer. Do we pray for those within the church? Our rugged, our cultural rugged individuality often makes us isolated. We grow more and more attached to everything, and yet we want a place to belong. It's one of the oddities of our current cultural zeitgeist. If you don't like zeitgeist, it means the way in which people are living now, that uh, we find ourselves in an environment where more and more people become more and more isolated and so find uh, smaller and smaller pockets of people to belong to. But the church is where God's people belong. It's not a small pocket of uh, reality, even though if we look around ourselves, we might think, well, this is kind of small We belong to a nation and a people and a family that is bigger than we can ever imagine. For the promises of God are certain and sure that when he told Abraham that your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore and the stars of heaven, he was not lying. And yet the size of God's community and his family is not as important as its father. Our status with him is is as, as immutable as his character we have ever, an everlasting salvation. This is our new status, but secondly, I want us to see our new foundation. So the ch- church is not a sh- social group based upon traditional social qualities. If you uh, think about the way that people begin uh, to form these kind of niche communities in our day and age, they are looking for something that is like birds of a feather flocking together. Some Uh, common interest or desire. But the church is built upon something infinitely more stable, a foundation infinitely less removable. It is built upon revelation and regulation. Paul turns from the political and familial metaphor to a structural metaphor here in verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He states that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, a statement that generates debate about what uh, the prophets really are. We know what the apostles are. They are the twelve include and uh, the addition of Paul. But which prophets is Paul referring to? Is he referring to the prophets of the Old Testament, or is he referring uh, to the prophets of the New Testament? Paul will use apostles and prophets in uh, chapter 4, verse 11, in talking about the gifts that God gives uh, to the church. It probably is more likely that Paul is referring to the ministry of New Testament prophets along with the ministry of the apostles, the way in which, in his day, revelation from God was being brought uh, to his people. And Paul's point here is one for us to take, not that there is the continuing uh, work of, of, of prophets or apostles in our day, but that the foundation of the church is based upon the revelation of God to them. What do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duties God requires of man. This, the Scriptures, is the foundation of the church. Paul draws from the Old Testament when discussing the position of Christ in the church here in verse 20, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen provides the closest parallel to this verse. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, he that believeth shall not make haste. People, Peter will directly quote this verse in First Peter two six. Jesus will use the same metaphor for himself in Matthew twenty one forty two, Mark twelve ten, and Luke ten, uh, Luke twenty seventeen. Did you ne- did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Quoting from Psalm one eighteen twenty two. Commentators debate the connection between this. Uh, the foundation and Christ as the cornerstone. At the heart of the controversy is Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 3.11 For no other foundation can ma- any man lay than what which is laid, which is Christ. So, is Christ the whole foundation, or is he the cornerstone of the foundation? And I'm not going to try to get into the controversy here, because Paul can use one metaphor and one letter and a completely different metaphor and another le- letter and both be true. Here in this, how do... A lot of it has to do with how we understand Jesus as the cornerstone. Some have tried to make it as the capstone or the headstone, the top of the arch. So the foundation at the bottom, Jesus at the top. However, it's probably better to understand the cornerstone as that uh, first stone to which all the building is to be gut gauged. All every part of the building's accuracy measured by this first stone. Jesus as the foundation of the foundation, the substance of the revelation of the apostles and the prophets. For they speak not from themselves, but solely of Jesus. Our foundation, that commonality to which we all belong, is based upon the revelation of God about Jesus the Savior. In one verse, Paul has given the church the foundation of its existence, its nature, its character, and its mission. We are people of the book of the Savior. The book is inseparable from the Savior. For we would have, never have any knowledge of the Savior, but for the book and the Spirit. You cannot be a follower of Christ without being a student of Scripture. You cannot claim Jesus as your Savior without the Bible as your guide and life plan. You cannot claim the church as your home without Scripture as its foundation. The Bible defines the story of the church, the mission of the church, the reason for the church, and the nature of the church. If we are to flourish as Christians, we are to orient our lives around the book, the Bible. We must resort to it frequently. My dad had this infuriating habit, and you know I've told you this before, that bugged his children to no end, and he still practices it. When we, when we would come to him and ask him for his advice, he would rarely ever tell us uh, what we ought to do. He would take us to Scripture and give us questions and factors that we ought to consider to know what to do. For every aspect of our life must follow what the Scripture teaches. We often want to know God's will by asking questions that the Bible is not interested in answering. And yet, if we would know God's will the questions we ought to answer ought to conform to the, an- quest- the the questions we ought to seek answers to ought to conform to the answers the bible is interested in giving because those are the answers that truly matter this is why reading the bible is important it's why the worship service follows the bible it is why worship is important because it takes us to the bible it is why being conscious in our daily life of Living out the Bible as our new foundation is so important. We see the new status, the new foundation, and finally a new building. Paul continues building on the structural metaphor with a connection to an image to which the people at Ephesus would probably have some immediate interest. He starts talking about a temple. And if you remember the story of those in Ephesus, they were pretty jazzed about their temple. Their temple that was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Diana. But better than that temple, Paul reminds the church that they are a holy temple, a holy dwelling. Paul describes the church as a temple in verse 21 in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord. Each member of the church is like a uniquely fitted stone that causes the temple to grow. You ought to, it's curious how he kind of mixes his metaphor, both agricultural and structural. We can think of it as being built, the stone upon stone as the temple is erected, but Paul kind of uses a an agricultural word, a growth word. As growing plants rise from the soil toward heaven, so this building, this temple, begins at its foundation and rises gradually. The temple's construction and this pro- progress reminds us that the growth of the church is not immediate. That it takes time. The individual stones are growing into their unique gifts but fit together into that building. Finally, and perhaps more importantly, Paul adds at the end of verse 21, a holy temple in the Lord. This word Lord probably points us to the Jesus Christ as the Lord. His key role in the entirety of of the building of the temple. That we are part of the temple because we have been united to Christ. This is probably why he kind of combines the agricultural and the structural uh, metaphor so that we cannot think of ourselves kind of as separate stones doing our own thing even within the broader uh, temple construct, but as a living organism which is growing with all of its parts uh, playing an intricate role. The body of Christ, as Paul will use as a metaphor as well. He funct- Jesus functions as the standard by which all the parts of the temple are measured, and he also includes his people into that building he constructs. Paul then repeats the principle, adding the inclusion of the Gentiles in verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit the union of all believers in the building of the temple. Paul contrasts the nature of the wonder at Ephesus with a temple of God. The temple God builds of his people is not merely the place where God is worshipped, it is the habitation of God. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool, and shall we build a temple for God, God asks in the Psalms. To David, he says, you will build a temple for me to live in? How can anyone live in a temple? Solomon, when he finishes the temple, as great as Solomon's temple is, recognizes what God has done and says, will you deign to dwell in this building? Man cannot build a temple that can house God, but God builds his own temple. God declares where he will live. The church is not just where God's people go to worship. The church is God's people. The church are those in whom God dwells through His Spirit. It radically changes our understanding of what church means. This room is not the church. It contains the church because we are here. The building that we are in is not the home of God. Because He has chosen to tabernacle within us by His Spirit. In what way does God live in us? Paul tells us that God inhabits us by His Spirit. Here we clearly understand that Paul is referring uh, to the Holy Spirit. The unity of the Godhead involves the procession of the Spirit. And the indwelling Holy Spirit is, the indwe- therefore, the indwelling of God. But are you a member of the church now I'm not asking you about your membership to a human organization, although that is important. I am asking about your status with God. Jesus continued to use the metaphor when he said, "The stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner." He said, "And whosoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken, but whosoever it shall fall upon, it will grind him to powder." Those who are not united to Christ, those who are not a part of the building that he is building, will be judged by that same standard, by that same Lord Jesus. And that judgment has only one verdict, guilty. Jesus told Nicodemus, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. We all stand condemned before a holy God Because of our sin, the righteous and just God must punish sin. And Jesus is the one and the only one who is able to resolve our most important problem. There is none other that is able. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. In the end, your son will be either punished in Jesus or in you. For Jesus is God who became man for us, to live the perfect life for us, to die for us upon the cross, to rise again on the third day, to proclaim his victory over sin. Failure to believe in Jesus, to be united to him in his death and resurrection, means your sins will be punished, though, in you. Do you believe this? Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Have you made peace with God through him? through repentance and faith. What is a church? It's not a building. It's not a pastor. For that, many of you are probably thankful. It is not an organization. It is God's people. What lessons ought we, therefore, to draw from Paul's description of the church? The first is that Jesus, as the foundation and the guide to whom all his people, all of his Building blocks are to be aligned. We are to pursue holiness. We are to pursue being that holy temple that God is bringing to to bear. Every habit, every part of us that is not looking, does not match the standard of Christ, must be removed. You think about all of those blocks that were fashioned by hand to make... Uh, the temple. Each one had to be ordered according to that uh, standard. And everything that wasn't uh, right about that block before it was put in the temple had to be knocked off. You know the story about Solomon's temple. They even did all of this work away from the temple so that the sound, no sound of uh, work of hammer striking uh, chisel, striking stone would be heard within the precincts of the temple. So, also, we are, even as we are apart, even as we're growing into the temple, are to give ourselves to be removing anything that does not look like Jesus. But, secondly, that very fact reminds us that Christian growth and the growth of God's kingdom and the growth of the church, both universally and locally, is a slow process. We are. A very impatient people. At least I know I am. This evening, as I leave here, I'll probably go home, take some uh, meat that I smoked this week, and put it in this wonderful invention called the microwave. In three minutes, it'll be ready for my consumption. At least I hope so. Microwave popcorn is wonderful. In a minute and a half, we are all ready to go. Instant gratification and we come to the Bible and we come to God often and want immediate sanctification, immediate holiness, and usually immediate holiness in other people because they are the problem and not us. But this message from Paul tells us that the problem is us and that the problem is not going to be solved immediately. That though we can never be satisfied with our current level of holiness, we cannot require of ourselves and others more growth than God grants. And finally, the third thing I want us to see here is that God, in, Paul, in this statement is making this one thing very abundant, that Christians grow together. One of the worst lies the devil uses is to convince the people of God that they are alone. We think that we must do the work of sanctification and growth alone. And yet we are given all of the means of grace together to do that work together. Why is it so hard? Why is it such a struggle to grow in Christ? Because it is the way the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to tear apart the unity of God's people. And what is it that enables us to continue in that Vain. What motivates us to endure the work of God cutting off all of our rough spots it is because we have been united to Christ our Savior. It is through the re- constant reminder of our Christian identity in Christ that God builds His church. By continuing to remember the blood of Jesus for our sin, that medicine for sin-sick souls that we desire to die to self. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we come before you as your people whom you have knitted together in your temple, who you are growing up into that habitation. We come before you as those who know how many, une- how much unevenness, how much wrong still lingers in us. So much that does not look like our Savior. Now often it it causes us impatience. And yet, O oh Lord, you are at work. It is you who are building your temple, it is you who are growing them, based upon the foundation of your word, the truth of Jesus for us. We pray that we would endeavor to live as members of your household, worthy of the name that you give us, of your people, of your family. Hear our prayer this evening as we make it in Jesus' name, amen.